Welcome to Rockbridge all across Northwest Georgia and in the Tennessee Valley. Uh, Hickson, Calhoun, Ringo, Dalton, Chatsworth in between. We're glad that you're here. My name is Matt, uh, one of the pastors on our team. And we're in our summer series where we're just talking about common struggles <clears throat> that everybody has. And even if you're Christian, non-Christian, you probably had some of these struggles. And try to help us maybe find a path to victory through or in the struggles that we face. So I'll tell you a story. When we started Rockbridge back in 2002, we did not we had a, we did not have this vast array of volunteers and other pastors and elders. And so when it came to the is, issue of pastoral care, you know, taking care of people in crisis or dealing with sickness or death, it was pretty much just me, myself, and I doing about 90% of that. And one of our our early found early members uh, had cancer, and it was very very serious and. We were praying for this person's healing, and they eventually were healed in the presence of Jesus because the, the, the disease proved fatal. And I was uh, ministering to her and the family during this time period, and so I was at the hospital a lot and could almost daily see how this disease affected uh, her body, and just really, one, grew to hate cancer, and then two is one day I remember I was so discouraged and so kind of depressed, I came home and I, and I told Beth, I was like, Beth... I just need to say right now, I just don't believe in God. And I know that's kind of like shocking. You know, I've been a Christian since I was eight years old, been in the Bible more days than I haven't been in the Bible, and I was pastoring a church to just basically confess that I was just in a spot of tremendous doubt about God's plans and God's goodness. And, you know, I think if we're honest, probably you have been there, maybe you are there, or there's just things that you see or you've experienced or you're wondering about that have caused you to doubt as well. And you might have grown up in, in a church uh, and you weren't even encouraged to doubt, and it was like doubt's a sin uh, or don't doubt or you got this answer, uh, the Bible says so which is such an emotionally and intellectually unsatisfying answer. So I just want to give us permission to doubt and to struggle with doubt. And, and what we will find when you read the Bible, because it was a book about, it's a book about real people, Jesus doubted, Peter doubted, Abraham doubted, David doubted, Paul doubted. I mean, there is doubters, all Thomas doubted. There's doubters all through the Bible. And I will, I'm going to make this case and this statement, and, and I want us to embrace it because it's real powerful, that I will say this, the ability to, to doubt is, is given to us by God, that God has enabled us as free beings, that we have a mind, and we can think about things, and we can think deeply about things, and we can ask questions about things. In, in fact, you know, when Adam and Eve were being tempted in the garden, they were given they were presented a situation by Satan, and they were asked, did God really say? And so I will say this, that before sin, which we call pre-lapsarian, before sin was the ability to doubt. Because by definition, God gave people a choice, so they had the ability to think about option A, option B. Option A, go forth and fill the world. Option B, eat the stuff you're not supposed to eat. And so they had the ability to ponder, to reflect, to think, and thus to doubt. And so doubt is, the ability to doubt is God-given, which takes me to the second point, which is that, therefore doubt will drive you somewhere. It can drive you to the places God wants you to go, or it can drive you somewhere else. So doubt is going to take us somewhere. My goal is that doubt doesn't take us out, but that doubt takes us where God wants us to go. So we're going to think today about two forms of doubt. The first form is what we'll call harmful doubt, which leads to unbelief. I just don't believe God in that area, or I don't believe in God at all, or in my 20s or on spring break, I, you know, just not going to believe at all. There's harmful doubt, but there's also help 
helpful doubt. Helpful doubt drives you actually deeper into God. And this is where I believe God has designed us to be able to ask critical questions and, and, and doubt him so that it can drive us deeper into him. Now, whether this happens or not depends on how we handle the struggle with doubt. So let me define doubt for us so we're all on the same page. And here's how we'll define it. Internal wrestling about what is real true and or what is worth it. So in our enlightenment, scientific, send everybody to school age, we want to think of doubt primarily as intellectual. Hey, is it real? Is it true? So there's people, hey, I'm not sure the Bible is true. I'm not sure what to do with Genesis and how the the six-day creation versus evolution, or did God do both of those? I'm not sure what's real or true. Even in our culture, we're dealing with fake news and this concept that people kind of manufacture news stories and present them as real. And so we're saying, is that real? Is that true? So there's a lot of doubt here, but as we're going to see today, a big chunk of doubt is just saying, is it or is this person worth it or not? We're not doubting real or true. We're saying worth it or not. So you have this kind of doubt when you go to the store or go shopping and you're like, you're not doubting whether the part thing is real or true or what its use is, but you're just saying, I don't think it's worth paying 50 bucks for it. I'd pay 30 for it. Or you're saying, hey, I think it is worth it to pay that amount of money for it. So you have this little internal wrestling match and and where you're doubting something's worth or you're assessing something's worth. And that's the same kind of, that's still doubt. For another example of that would be flying in an airplane. No one can doubt whether an airplane can fly or not and whether it can get you there faster or not. But there's still some people who say, it's not worth it to me to put myself in, in in a flying box. And so people don't fly. Some of you, that's the same logic you use about going to the dentist. (laughs) You know, it's real and true you should, and your teeth would appreciate it, but it's just not worth it to you to go to the dentist because of whatever reason. So we're always doubting things, not just on facts and not just intellectually, but we're doubting them on, are they valuable to us? Are they worth it to us or not? And and so those two categories of doubt, helpful and harmful, in this definition is how we're going to approach this passage of Scripture, which is a phenomenal story in the Bible. And it's the story in John chapter 11 where Jesus resurrects a human being who had been dead for several several days. His name was Lazarus. His sisters, Martha and Mary, had sent for Jesus, but Jesus dilly-dallied and didn't show up. And and so they sent for him while he was sick. Jesus waited, delayed, didn't come until he, after he had died... And and so you have this whole dynamic there. We're going to come back to that part. But after the resurrection of Lazarus, it shifts to kind of scene two of act one of the story. And, And scene two is the religious leaders of the day processing the news that Jesus has resurrected another person, a human being who has been dead from the grave. And we're going to explore their level of doubt first. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 11, we'll start reading verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, that's one of Lazarus' sisters, and saw what he did, he raised Lazarus from the grave, believed in him, came, they wrestled, they believed, they trusted, they put their faith in Christ. But some of them, so an alternative faction emerged, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and Pharisees convened, convened the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing council of the day, and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? We're not doubting if what he did is real or not. We're not doubting his miracles. We're not doubting his power. We're not doubting the fact that Lazarus had been resurrected from the dead. However, if, that's a statement of wrestling, that's a doubt statement. If, if we let him continue this way, if Jesus continues doing what he's doing, 
everyone will believe, will not doubt. Everyone will follow him. Everyone will trust in him. So here's how, here's how doubt kind of affects our ability to define reality and to live into that reality. Let me do it in kind of in the form of like a mathematical equation. So reality or our perception of the truth is Jesus plus our situation. Our situation are the facts about it and our perception about the facts of our situation. Now, some people just doubt Jesus immediately, but let me tell you why he's in the equation. We as Christ followers, and you may not necessarily believe all of this yet, but we as Christ followers believe he's Lord over all, he's the creator of all, he's sovereign, he's in charge over sales and DNA and over the Milky Way and and everything in between. So we say Jesus is a big part of reality, but we have our situation, and this could be our marriage. This could be our finances. This could be a a terrorist attack. This could be a natural disaster. This could be a a, a science class where the teacher says stuff that seems factual and your perception of that. So this could be anything that we're talking about. And this is where the situation and our perception where doubt comes to play. So the situation in John chapter 11 is Jesus is there and nobody can doubt what he's done. The situation is he has resurrected a guy from the grave. That's the facts. And the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin are going to develop a perception about the situation and about Jesus and determine what's real or not or what they're going to do about it or not. So back to John 11, 48. If we let Jesus continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. So listen to what they're saying. If we let Jesus continue our position, our power, our authority, our agenda is gone. Our position, our power, our authority are in jeopardy. Jesus is a threat to our situation. We can't deny who he is. We can't deny what he did, but he is not worth it to us. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Isn't it amazing that the whole plot to crucify Jesus came as a result of perhaps his greatest miracle, that of resurrecting someone from the dead. In in other words, the doubt that they had was not intellectual. The doubt was, it's just not worth it to let Jesus continue in this situation. Now, if we're being honest, and I hope we will be, most of us have killed Jesus too. You, you haven't like literally kind of hung him on a tree, but you've killed Jesus in your finances because it just wasn't worth it to follow Jesus in your finances. So you doubted he could be Lord over your finances. And so you just removed him from the equation. Some people have doubted Jesus in their sexual situation, in their marriage situation, in their decision-making. Hey, I, I don't think Jesus is interested in this decision. So you doubt Jesus, you remove him, and you plot to get him out of the way. And it's just, you're not saying you don't believe in Jesus. You're not denying the facts of the Bible necessarily. You're just saying, in this decision or in this, in this area of my life, it is just not worth it to trust or follow or believe in Jesus. Jesus. And that is why doubt is way more about our values and our desires than about facts and intellect. So we could put our equation back up here and illustrate it this way. So reality, Jesus plus my situation, your situation is informed by the facts and your perception of those facts, but perception is shaped by the heart and your heart are your values and your desires. So if my heart does not want, 
If my heart does not want Jesus to have authority or have a say over my sex life or over my financial life or over my marriage or over my career or over how I handle money, then my heart will have a perception that creates a doubt about Jesus, and I'll use that doubt to kind of remove him from the equation. Or let me say it to you this way. The heart will enlist the head to eliminate or marginalize God. So your doubt and my doubt is way more driven by our heart, what our heart wants, what our heart desires, than it is about reality or science or facts or our intellect. So for example, let's just zoom out for a second. I, I can prove and historians can prove factually that the resurrection of Jesus happened. There's six independent sources to an independent, to an empty tomb in Jerusalem on the morning of Easter. 500 eyewitnesses saw resurrected Jesus. So that's factual. That's historical fact. That's every bit as historical. Historical as, as me saying Alexander the Great lived. Every bit is historical. And yet people, I, I have said that to people who don't believe in God and they look back at me and not one person has said, can I read a book about that? Not one atheist that I've ever talked to has said, can I read a book? Can I find out more about that? I've had the, uh, you press deeper and it's a heart issue. So go, to, go to the realm of creation, go to the realm of science. And, and, and so an atheist or a, a strict evolutionist type person is going to say, we're here by chance. And I would say we're here by a creator. But, but look at the facts in creation. The nuclear force, which is what keeps a proton and a neutron bound together, if that nuclear force is 5% stronger or weaker, everything disintegrates back into itself and you and I don't exist. The mass of a neutron is 1.001 times greater than the mass of a proton. If that changes at all, boom, disintegrated, and we just all disintegrate and move away. We're not even held together. You can't even see those facts, but they're scientific facts. And I would simply say, uh, do those facts point us to luck and chance and coincidence, or do those facts point us to an all-wise, pretty all-powerful creator? So we can talk about facts all we want, and yet people will still look back at us and say, eh, why? Because something's going on in the heart that says, I don't think it's worth it to have a God. I don't think it's worth it to value Jesus. Even in, this, even in, in the number one reason people doubt, which is evil. Like, I don't get the tornado. I, I don't get cancer. I don't get wars. I don't get torture. I don't get the Holocaust. Uh, even, even, in the, even in those situations, when you really press, what people really want is God to explain something to us in a way that we will accept his answer. That, that's really what it is when we're wrestling with evil. And then you have to think that's somewhat presumptuous that we could even intellectually be on the same level of a God who created a proton and a neutron with the exact properties so that everything doesn't disintegrate. And so we push back and say, well, maybe more of our doubt is more worship, moral values and desires than it is intellect and facts and science versus the Bible. In fact, the Bible is really clear about how this all happens. Listen to this passage in Romans 1. This is how powerful your heart is in leading your head. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. Truth is facts. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Wickedness is a heart condition. So the heart enlists the head to suppress the truth. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. How has God made it obvious? For ever since the world was created, 
intentionally, not accidentally. People have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. That's the person in the Amazon. That's the person in the laboratory at Caltech. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but let's go to the heart. They wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't value him. They wouldn't honor him. They wouldn't submit to him as God or even say, thank you for the air. Thank you for the fact that the proton and the neutron are positioned such a way and have such, you know, the nuclear force is exactly precise that we just don't disintegrate. And so what do they do? They begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. So your heart uses doubt to create something in the head that minimizes, marginalizes, or outright eliminates God. Even if you walk out of here like, I'm not an atheist, I'm not an agnostic, you probably are in some area of your life. I have heard people say to me who are Christians or say they're Christians, they have said to me, well, my marriage is awful and I'm not happy and God wants me to be happy so I can get a divorce. You have just reinvented God to suit your heart's desires and redefine marriage and redefine the scriptures. You've just done it. I've heard couples who are sleeping together. Well, we're in love. And God is love. That subjective, mushy, people magazine love, right? Not biblical love, because biblical love is sacrificial and not about me. It's about you and God. So, again, our doubt in the heart about, it's just not worth it to follow God. Because my biology wants to follow her to the bedroom. And, and so we just get real creative about thinking ideas of what God is like that contradicts what God has revealed himself in creation, in scripture, in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. So here's what happens. We doubt through the heart Jesus' worth or his value. We just don't want a God over our sexuality. We don't want a God over our Sunday mornings. Christians have said to me, I can be a Christian and not part of the church. Where do you get that from? You made that up. You made that up to satisfy the fact that you just won't get your butt out of bed and be submitted to an organized group of followers of Jesus. Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. So we come to believe in the head that Jesus should be removed from our reality. Well, I still believe in God. Do you value God? Because doubt is not just factual belief, but it's it's just not worth it to follow God. Not worth it to follow God. That's harmful doubt. Now, in this story, we also got helpful doubt. Because we have these two sisters whose brother dies, and Jesus let him die. And they're not real satisfied with that response, and so... They're going to have doubts too, and we're going to see them wrestle with this whole equation as well. And so let's flip backwards in our Bible to John 11, and we'll start in verse 17. When Jesus arrived, this is at the tomb of Lazarus, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, 
about two miles away. And so many other Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother and their brother's death. So as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, and here's our doubt. If you had been here, why weren't you here? You can read, it's all in there. The implication is doubt. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And and there's probably not a single person in any Rockbridge campus or listening to me online who has not said that in some form or fashion. God, if you had done what you can do, because I know you're all powerful, I have seen the creation, I've seen a sunrise, and, and, and I've learned about the nuclear force today in church. So God, I know you got a lot of power. If you had chosen to, I wouldn't have gotten divorced. Uh, I, I wouldn't have lost the use of my hand. I wouldn't have gotten fired. My brother, my wife would not have died. So we've all been there. But here's what we get from Martha that we did not get from Adam and Eve, that we did not get from the religious leaders, and that if we're honest, sometimes we don't do it ourselves either. Martha took her doubts directly to God, and she struggled in his presence because Jesus is God, remember? She went straight to God, and she gives it to him. Jesus, if you'd been here, Lazarus would still be here. You can read the the Psalms of David. David doubts in God's presence. You can read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus doubts in the presence of his heavenly Father inside the Trinity. So doubting in the presence of God is actually a way to wrestle with God. And God's okay with that. He's big enough. He can handle it. So whoever told you doubt was a sin, no, it's not. It'll take you to sin, but it can also take you to God. So just remember that. And then Jesus engages her, as he always will. Any honest seeker, any humble seeker, he'll engage. He says, she says to him, Martha, yet even now, so Jesus, even now, I'm still with you. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus replies, he says, well, your brother will rise again. And then Martha said, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And this is the last time that Jesus is going to talk about Lazarus. And he's going to switch the conversation. So he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So Martha, let's not talk about Lazarus. Let's not talk about human biology. Let's not talk about four days in the tomb. Let's not talk about why I didn't show up till I showed up. Let's talk about me. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, spiritual death, ever. And he goes, Martha, do you believe in this? Do you believe in this, Martha? Do you doubt? Do you believe? Where are you at, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are. Even though my brother is dead, I believe you are the Messiah. And that is thousands of years of belief in that confession. Going back to Genesis 3, this is thousands of years of Jewish hope, thousands of years of battles in the promised land and exile and messianic prophecy right there. I believe you're the one we've been waiting on. You are the son of God who has come into the world. And so 
Here's what Jesus does that is so beautiful and so amazing and it's so relevant to you and I. The most important question when we're doubting, the most important question is who is Jesus? The most important question is not what about the dinosaurs and is it six days literal or six days figurative? The most important question is not what about cancer and what about terrorism and what about you know the climate change? The most important question always is who is Jesus? In fact, there are so many many of you and you will not share your faith with people because you're afraid they're going to ask you some question you cannot answer. If you are a Christ follower and you have seen the worth of Jesus, you can answer this question to anybody in the world 365 days a year and twice on Sunday. And that's where you take them. Because in the end, nobody is going to miss heaven or the new kingdom because of not fully understanding creation. And nobody is going to miss heaven or the new creation or, 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 excuse me, or the new kingdom because they were you know, not sure about cancer and, and, and evil and tragedies. Nobody. But you'll miss it all if we miss Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, let's stop talking about Lazarus for a minute and let's talk about me I am, Martha, the resurrection and the life. Because here's what God wants you to discover more. Listen to me. Please listen. Don't have intellectual presumption or intellectual pride because the most important thing God wants you to discover is not the reason the world is the way it is, although we can get you there. The, the, re, the, the most important question God wants you to discover is not how to correctly interpret Genesis 1, although we can get you there. The most important question is not, hey, God, why didn't you show up? The most important question is, God, why are you late? Why would you let that happen? The most important thing God wants us to discover is sufficiency in his son. Sufficiency in his son. And your doubt can take you there. Your doubt can drive you deeper into the joys and the riches and the pleasures and the supremacy and the sufficiency of King Jesus. If you're an honest doubter, if you leverage your doubt to zoom in on him, because that's where God will take you. And, and if you're looking like in a science textbook and you're not willing to look here, you'll miss Jesus. If you're looking at your circumstances and CNN and you're not willing to zoom in here, you'll miss it and you'll have harmful doubt and it'll cause you to do things you don't really want to do and take you to places and give you emotions that you don't really want to have. So here's how we amp up how we struggle through doubt. We leverage doubt to ask questions about our heart. Because we recognize that a lot of doubt is more heart than head. In fact, majority of doubt is more heart than head. In fact, even in that number one reason why people doubt, <coughs> why people doubt, which is the problem of evil in the world, most, of, uh, most people, when we're honest and we're asked, talking about evil, we're really wanting an infinite, all-powerful creator to be able to explain something in a, to, to, in a way that we find acceptable. Hey, I, I just want an answer for evil, God. I want you to tell me why we have cancer and why we have tornadoes and why we have hurricanes and why we have famines in Africa. So God, can you answer that? And if you answer it in a way I agree with and that's okay to me, then I'll believe in you. What have we just done? We've just put ourselves on top of God. So even in that question, our heart is driving the head. Because we're saying, hey, God who designed the nuclear force, God who created the proton and the neutron and the sunrise, and God who created the human body and the air we breathe, God, I think I can know better than you about the problem of evil. So there's a little bit of presumption there. So we push in, and let's ask some questions of our hearts again. Here's some questions. 
First one is this. Is my heart more willing to scheme or to surrender? Is your heart scheming or is your heart surrendering? And the more self-aware you are, the more you recognize when this goes on. In fact, I read this story of a pastor who asked us this question. And he asks it of college kids who come home. And you know, you know the story, right? The college kid goes off and he's raising the church, he raised to be a Christ follower, his parents were Christians, goes to college, and boom, he gets bombarded, you know, in science class, freshman chemistry or freshman biology. And next thing you know, he doubts and this, that, and the other. No, he's not a Christian. Well, so this student comes home to this pastor's church. He says, Pastor, I don't know, I've been taking some classes and I just don't believe in God or I'm not sure about God, I'm not sure about the Bible, yada, yada, yada. So the pastor's first question back to this student is this, so when did you start sleeping with your girlfriend? Now, I don't recommend asking that, but I'm going to tell you why he does that. Because he realizes that most people don't believe their way from God, they behave their way from God. And they find, hey, I... I think it'd be cool to do this with my girlfriend. So how do I feel better about myself and justify myself so I can sleep with my girlfriend whenever I want to? And I know that's wrong. Oh, I'll just start doubting God and I'll blame it on science. I'll blame it on my professor. You'd be surprised. That's probably more of what actually happens on college campuses. Because our hearts would rather scheme than surrender. And our hearts will scheme and leverage doubt to lower God. Second question, is my heart reinventing God or relying on the revelation of God? Reinventing God or relying on the revelation of God? And so the heart is so deceptive that our heart will say, well, God wants me to be happy. Well, everybody does it. Well, boys will be boys where you're only 21 once. And so we'll reinvent God instead of relying on the revelation of God. And, and who God is and what his character says. And, and this can go on in our hearts. And, and this is how doubt can drive us away from God. Another question. What sin or temptation might be active? When I'm doubting God, what sin or temptation might be active? Your heart, my heart, everybody's heart roughly has four core idols. When I say a core idol, I mean the foundation that is the root of sin. So the sin is usually not, the root sin is not alcohol. The root sin is not greed. The root sin is not pornography or impurity. The root sin are usually power, control, comfort, or approval. And alcohol gives you this, or your job gives you this, or, you know, sexuality gives you this. And so the roots are power, control, comfort, and approval. So when you find these things going off in your heart, that's when you have to be alerted that your heart will leverage doubt to create a cloud over God. I'll show you how this happened or how it happened in my life. So when God called us to start Rockbridge Community Church, and Beth and I were in Virginia at the time, it was January 12, 2002, and we were all fired up that, hey, God had called us, we're going to come home and start Rockbridge in Northwest Georgia, be a, be a church for people from all walks of life and all that kind of thing. We were pretty pumped up. Well, my, one of my, I can identify with all of these core idols, but one of my bigger core idols is this word right here, approval, okay? Approval. So a few weeks in, we started getting opposition. It sounded like, you know, not everybody wanted a new church or a different kind of church in, in Northwest Georgia. And so uh, phone calls and yada, 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 and drama and opposition, opposition. And I remember I started doubting whether we should go or not. I didn't doubt that God had clearly spoken to us on January 12, 2002. I doubted if it was going to be worth it because if people are opposing you for doing something, then you're not going to get approval. And thank God I had a wife who called me out. 
and challenged me because I was like, Beth, we shouldn't go. And she's like, well, maybe we shouldn't, Jedi mind trick, by the way. And I was like, no, Beth, we, and I was like, no, Beth, we have to go. She's like, that's exactly right. We're not going to talk about it again. Let's start packing our bags, okay? So, but if you don't recognize these core idols going off in your heart, your heart is so good at doubting and, oh, maybe we shouldn't go. That's a closed door. We'll use religious language. God just closed the door. Maybe you're just doubting whether you should persevere in doing the right thing or not. Another question, what attribute of God's character needs my heart's attention? Your heart is wired to give something or someone attention. The moment you fall in love, when you want someone to go on a date, you want the new job, you, you know, your bank statement at the end of the month, your heart's going to give attention to something. And so instead of giving attention to comfort and approval and power and control, we want to give attention to an attribute or a character of God and focus our heart on that. And that causes our heart to worship and stand in awe of God. And we stick with God and we press deep through our doubts to, to a deeper level of intimacy with God. Another way this worked in my life, and the third story of my doubt this morning. Um, so I'm a doubter, I confess. So uh, this is when Beth had leukemia. And we went through a period of time where we were touch and go on a few things, and we didn't know uh, what was going to happen. So we had a really, really, bad, really, really, really bad night. And uh, the next morning, it was just so crazy. I, I was a little bit freakish, freaking it out, freaking out. And I was like, "Look, please, nobody else touch her until you bring in our attending physician, so he can tell us what's going on." So they paged him. He comes in about five minutes later. And uh, kind of walks us through what's going on. And I'll never forget, Beth, as calm as she could possibly said, hey, hey doctor, could I die? And he, he was always honest, great physician he was. And he looked back, he said, yes. He goes, I'm not going to know for a couple of hours to see if this protocol, this treatment is going to work. Okay, now you can imagine when you hear those, and some of you have been there. And um, so... Uh, anyway, so Beth looks at me, calm as she could be, and just said, hey, Matt, go make some phone calls, and would you ask people back home to pray for us? So here's what's going on in Matt's heart. Doubt, anger, fear, frustration. But in that moment, I learned something. Now, I, can tell, I could tell you a textbook answer for what the sovereignty of God is. I could tell you that means God's in charge of everything. I, I could tell you uh, he knows the hairs on our head. I could tell you he's in charge of history. He's in charge of creation. He was in charge of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I didn't know that in my heart. But in that moment, I had to lean into and take my heart to lean into the sovereignty of God. To take doubt from taking me to somewhere harmful and take me to someone helpful. Now, for you this morning... You may need God's wisdom and goodness more than you need to lean into his sovereignty. For some of you, you're, the reason you're doubting is because of sins you committed and you doubt God's goodness or grace to you. Could God really forgive you? And so you need to lean into the fact that God is gracious, God is benevolent, God is merciful, and you need to lean into that. Some of you, you may, because your, your heart's attention is with a sin, you need to lean into God's holiness. But it's taking our heart's attention off the, 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 the immediate issue and putting it onto an aspect of God and just letting it worship, your heart worship God because God is sovereign, God is gracious, God is good, God is all-knowing, God is all-wise. Then the final heart question would be this, and it's Peter's question, the disciple Peter, and it is, well, who will we go to? Let me tell you what Peter, what had just happened. This is John chapter 6. So Peter, Jesus had just preached what I call a space maker sermon. 
A space maker is when the preacher preaches something hard and difficult from the Bible that he knows will step on people's toes. He knows some people will find offensive, and so they're probably not going to show up the next week, and he's just made more space for other people, right? That's the space maker, okay? Jesus preaches a space maker sermon, and everybody leaves except his disciples. Like, everybody's like, "Mm, not going to follow this guy, not worth it anymore, and so Jesus looks up after preaching. He looks at his disciples. He's like, hey, are y'all going to stick around too? And Peter goes, well, who else are we going to go to? Because we have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, we're not sure what you just taught about, but we're not leaving you. Jesus, we're not sure about what you just said. He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. That was the core of it. But we're going to stay with you. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's not talk about your brother, Mary and Martha. Let's talk about Jesus, me. And that's where God wants to take you with your doubt. He wants to take you to a deeper trust, revelation, and knowledge. And and listen, you you can work your doubt out. It will take you somewhere. It will take you to a bottle. It will take you to a bedroom. It will take you to a divorce. It will take you to unbelief. It will take you to a place by yourself. It will take you to a place where you're broken or you're bitter or you're confused. Or it'll take you closer to your creator and your redeemer. Your creator and your redeemer. Imagine if Adam and Eve had leveraged the doubt that Satan put into their head. To say, no, God's been too good. God's too gracious. We don't even owe, I mean, we're only here because God, why would we rebel? Why would we sin? Because we know we're walking with the Holy One of God. How things could have been different. How things could be different for you and I. If we just ask that question and just stay with this answer. So we realize, number two, that Christian faith is not blind Okay, there are many, many facts, many, many truths, history, creation that affirm the Christian faith. But if you're really honest, unbelief is blind. Unbelief is saying, well, I don't want to see God in this area of my life. I don't want to see God in control or as the Lord of my life. And so I'll use doubt to be able to marginalize God and justify the way I want to live. But church, if we would open our eyes to see Jesus is the one the heart was made to stand in awe of. Jesus is the one the heart was made to say, he alone is worth it today, tomorrow, and eternity, and for all eternity. So with the eyes of our heart, we say, we'll worship Jesus and we'll press in in moments of doubt, leveraging doubt to know the one more who loves us best. Let's pray together, Rockbridge. God, I thank you for strugglers. I thank you that we have been given this capacity to doubt because you've given us freedom. And I pray that our doubt, God, would just push us deeper into the revelation and the knowledge of who you are. God, I pray that our doubt would not shipwreck us or take us out. I pray that our doubt would push us deeper into who you are, God, as the Holy One, who you are, God, as the resurrection and the life. God, I pray for every person here. I pray every person here has had an encounter with you. I pray every person here, God, would take a step closer to you in their mind, in their heart, and in their soul right now because we trust your revelation, we trust your goodness, and we rest in the fact that you, God, alone 
are God, you are the resurrection, and you are the life. And it is in your mighty, holy, and eternal name we pray, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.